Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where my guests pick out stories which they think are important but somewhat underreported and we get to shine a light on some interesting things happening here and around the world. I'm delighted to be joined this week. Uh, I have two guests in the studio as usual, Jamie Suskind, barrister and author of Future Politics, which is out today. And we have um, Zara Zaidi, who is a social entrepreneur and a former advisor to the Conservative Party. Thank you and welcome to the podcast. Jamie, just tell us quickly about your book because it is actually out today. Yes, it's about the future of politics. And the thesis is that those who control the most powerful technologies, be they big tech firms or states, will increasingly control the rest of us. And I try and look through the consequences for power, for democracy, for freedom, for justice, uh, and suggest ways that we can try to take back control. Wow. Well, that's definitely the phrase of um, our generation, isn't it? And um, Sarah, just quickly, what what have you been up to? Tell me a little bit about the work you've been up to recently. Well, I'm involved in various uh, charities and social reform programmes, and I've been working on one that's based in Manchester called Cities of Hope, where we uh, essentially use civic arts to highlight social justice issues, and we work with charities all over the country with it. Brilliant. So, Jamie, I'm going to come to you first for your underreported story. The story that really caught my eye this week is something that's been reported in The Guardian by David Pegg and Neve McIntyre. And the basic thrust of it is that local councils, including one in Bristol, have started using machine learning algorithms to predict which children are most at risk uh, of abuse. Now, machine learning algorithms are basically uh, artificial intelligence systems that churn through enormous amounts of data in order to find patterns that the human creators of those systems themselves might not even have seen. And these councils insist that um, the council themselves, human beings, are still involved at the end of the process. But it's quite a novel approach to government and something that I think we're going to see a lot more of in the future. So do you think this is a sort of tech solution to, I don't know, like falling police numbers or a squeeze on budgets, will it be able to, to help in that respect? It's certainly pitched in the article as a response to falling budgets, although increasingly machine learning algorithms are used in all parts of our life and not just because they're cost efficient. It could certainly bring benefits if used properly, but it obviously raises um, questions of transparency and accountability, questions of methodology with these advanced st- statistical methods and things are sometimes got wrong. And it it brings to mind the American system where algorithms are are much more common in commercial and political life, whether it's in determining whether you get a mortgage or insurance, including health insurance, how long you're going to spend in prison, how likely you are to re-offend. Algorithms are creeping into all corners of public policymaking, and it's interesting to see that it started here. And in terms of the algorithms and and how the data is tracked, are they tracking the the child or are they tracking potential offenders uh, the uh, as i understand the article it's principally the child so what they're looking at is statistics from lots of different children gathered together and they and, and uh, they look at the children who in the past have been subject to abuse and then try to identify the factors that they all have in common and then they look for other children who haven't been reported as being the subject of abuse and see if they have those factors so and it's, it's can, a predicting game. And it can be things like domestic abuse, youth offending, uh, rent arrears, that, those kind of things which you could build up a picture about someone's sort of life and a propensity 
Exactly. And I think anyone listening will immediately see that there is sometimes a risk with predictive algorithms that only particular social groups end up being targeted. You know, all of the things that you just mentioned are, it is said, correlated with a high risk of abuse, but they're blind to instances of abuse, for example, in more well-off communities. Yeah. And so there is a risk when you use data from the real world and rely on that, that sometimes you end up replicating or amplifying or magnifying injustices that already exist in the real world. And biases that we already have, particularly the biases of the people who develop the algorithms exactly. in the first place. Exactly. Which algorithms you use and crucially which data you use will determine whether the algorithm is fair. So a machine learning algorithm which uh, is designed to listen to voices, if it's only tra trained on male voices, literally will not hear women. And a machine learning algorithm designed to find child abuse, if it's only trained on data from less well-off families. And typically, the data associated with less well-off families is what social services are likely to have. Mm. Uh, then it might be blind to abuse in other parts of the community. That's not to do it down. It's just one of those things that you have to keep in mind with a new area of public policy. See, I suppose that's the thing that slightly troubles me. It sounds a bit big brother. Sarah, what, what's your kind of thinking on this? I think the score economy, as they call it, is here to stay. You know, data is an increasing part of our lives. The trouble I have with it is essentially the kind of composite model we build on which we then test the algorithm. So, for example, um, from what I've seen uh, throughout, throughout different councils, they, they use different sort of baselines. So, you know, is it, you know, the obvious ones about, you know, risk of violence, fine. But if you look at things like unemployment, you know, that's that, that's really sort of broadening out. And um, that, so, so, so that's one thing. And, and in the states where this is far more common, it's it's sort of been called the sort of the high tech poorhouse. It's mm, it's it's not it's not only highlight. It's sort of amplifying inequalities, and 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 what what's what data are councils looking at? They're probably looking at data they already have that often hit some of the poorest and most disadvantaged sections of of society, and and how can we guard against that? You know so. And, and so the next question is, you know, the different levels of transparency out there. So, so you know, how do they source this data? How do they mine mm. it? What what model do they use? Is there sort of, do, should we have more national oversight on that? Um, and then what are the transparency obligations towards the public? You know, there's not, there's a lack of awareness. Well, there's always that crucial question, which is how do you get the balance between pioneering what could be a really, really useful new technology and the sort of privacy and the, the bias issues. I suppose, Jamie, this is the point where somebody like me who's probably a bit old school and a bit kind of statist and a bit sort of human driven is that's why you do need a human at the end of, you know, it's great to get all this data, but you need to have somebody making a kind of subjective sort of valuation on it. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things about that. The first, as Zara points out, is that we don't yet have a national standard for the levels of transparency with these algorithms. That's a problem. It's also a problem in the US. In Wisconsin, a man uh, tried to sue the state so he could understand the algorithm that had determined how long his prison sentence should be. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Wisconsin didn't allow him to understand the factors beneath that. And the US Supreme Court declined to hear the case. Mm -hmm. So transparency is going to be a big theme in politics. And as Zara points out, it's much easier to be comfortable with these algorithms when they're about protecting children and when they're about putting a human being uh, in between the decision maker, the, the algorithmic decision making, and the end result, when I, well, th the real test of our commitment to these kinds of uh, these kinds of instruments is when it comes to stripping people away 
from services. Mm-hmm. So algorithms which say you're you're not entitled to this or you're less likely to be vulnerable and therefore we're taking away something from you. That's when, and that, and that does happen a lot more in the United States, both in the private sector and in the public sector. That's when people are going to really sit up and start wondering about these things that um, are governing their lives. I would add, though, that even having a human being at the end of it, you've still made a pretty serious public policy choice. And by the time the decision gets to the human decision maker, many avenues of possibility may have been closed. Mm. A human decision maker is not going to see a vulnerable child if they haven't been presented with the evidence that that child is vulnerable. And so if they're relying on the results generated by digital systems, then it might not be a full corrective to have a human Yeah, it might be too late at that point. It's really interesting because, you know, obviously at a time when there's fewer and fewer resources, then it's, it's, it's right to look at these innovative um, solutions. But when areas are as sensitive as child abuse or, you know, protecting vulnerable children or, or adults, you do think the kind of human element is quite important. I think it, it feels it feels sort of precarious to just be thinking like a data set can 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 work this all out for us. And my slight anxiety as well is that it's grist to the mill of people who want to just cut and cut and cut and and just say, look, you can get rid of humans and social workers and yeah. and you can just do it all through automation. There's two things like that to that. So so if you even have a human at the end of all this predictive data, how accurate is it? I think there was, in the article you mentioned, Jamie, um, I think Thurrock Council, uh, the provider of that service there, talked about an 80% accuracy. So what happens when that reaches the human at the end of it? How much how much background information do they have? How many different mm-hmm. levers are they to ensure that they've made the right decision? What happens in the event of a complaint, uh, as Jamie mentioned? You know, what, what happens to sort of rectify any mistakes? Now, obviously, they might be minor, but they could happen. And and the second thing, Aisha, is what you mentioned about the fact that we're in we've, we're in an era of finite resources. And an amazing technical app is no substitute for the actual structural inequalities in dealing with those. And and we've got to be careful about not shying away from oh we've got this great solution and you know we, we we've we've increased our efficiency, um, you know pat ourselves on the back and not and and possibly be unaware of the fact that as Jamie said we're losing some children who are falling through the tr- through the cracks or some people are losing out on services. I mean those are the people we really need to mm. help in our communities. Well, Jamie, thank you for highlighting that. So such an interesting um, story and interesting as well. It's actually already been done by a lot of councils. Um, you mentioned Thurrock, um, Essex, Hackney um, as well. So it's it's definitely a story to watch in a public policy area that we should keep um, an eye on. So thanks very much for that. Now, Sarah, I'm going to turn to you. What is your underreported story? You're going global. Yes, I am. Um, so I, I've spent about a decade working on religious freedoms, um, mostly in the Middle East. And I wanted to talk about the issue around the Chinese Uyghurs. So I think Newsnight did, did a story a week ago or so, talking about the fact that a potentially up to one million Chinese Uyghurs from what they call East Turkestan are, are being held in re-education camps. Um, and there are lots of stories about surveillance, being forced to sort of shave beards and, and, change, and, 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 uh, and alter how they dress. Now, that story is clearly underreported in the West. You know, we're not aware of it. But what's quite interesting is the lack of uh, reporting at all in the Middle East and Asia. Uh, Mm. Muslim countries, which have been quite ready to talk about Rohingya Muslims, quite ready to talk about, I don't know, um, uh, uh, 
a Mohammed cartoon competition in, in, in Denmark or talk about restrictions on uh, Muslims in, in, in Europe and, of course, the Trump ban on Muslims. But there's been silence on that. And, and you've got to ask yourself why. And part of that is probably because of the economic power that China now has. You've got the, the Chinese Road and Belt project, which has about 80-odd countries. It's a $900 billion-pound project. Um, and, and just Pakistan alone benefits enormously. And, and, that's, and, 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 and that issue brings up an, a number of questions. You know, the issue of trading rights versus economic benefit, the fact that we are selective in our criticism uh, based on alliances globally, um, the fact that Countries will not opine on something because, of course, if, say, for example, an Arab country, it then means that the, that the mirror might be self-reflected back. Well, on I their mean, restrictions. it's sort of pot kettle black, you know, pot kettle black sort of yeah, thing. You, yeah. you would, um, but also the, the the economic power thing is very, very interesting. So, do you feel that lots of people are? Um, censoring their critique because they're thinking, chase the money. We want to keep doing business with China or grow our business with China. I don't. I don't think it's it's overt, I don't, and I certainly don't think anyone would would would, would um, own up to that. But you have to ask why in if geopolitics there is such overwhelming criticism of some human rights abuses. I mean, clearly, you know, what's happening to Rohingya has 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 catapulted everyone's attention and it and it's although despicable. We're still not, although we're not doing anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but at least it's talked about. But when you have China in t- potentially interning up to one million um, ethnic Muslims, and we've barely heard about it, and certainly the, the very Muslim countries that are first to raise issues of rights around Muslims are not saying anything. You know, you've got to ask why. And one is that the own... OK, there are probably three reasons. One, it's their own political landscape of, you know, if they, they, they've... They tend not to interfere. Um, and, and China's the same policy of not necessarily interfering in, in domestic policy part, and in return, you don't then talk about your neighbours. The second is, 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 is probably the fact that um, they have got this... Um, you know they've got their own human rights abuses, and and the, and and, yeah. and then that spotlight will come. And the third thing, you know, I would I would look at the economic relationship. And and Turkey, I mean, I'll finish here, but Turkey did criticise China, um, some time ago, and 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 the relationships have been somewhat strained since then. Although to be fair, Turkey's got its own <laughs> issues yeah. as well. But I mean, Jamie, this throws up a very interesting question about you know how much we should criticise other um, regimes. I mean, I would believe we should talk about this stuff we should be internationalists but it's interesting you know we're so desperate for a trade deal post uh, brexit you know when our ministers go to china it is quite a push and a shove to get them to even broach the human rights issues that are still ongoing in china i think it's one of the defining questions of international relations and with us you you, you see you see it already i mean theresa may's slowness to criticize donald trump when he says outrageous things um, Michael Gove in the Conservative Party's reluctance to criticise or censure Viktor Orban in Hungary because of the need for a trade deal, which you were hinting at. The silence uh, about what's going on in Saudi Arabia and Yemen because we have a strategic alliance with the yeah. Saudis. That's both commercial and um, security-based alliance. Iran, you know, we all want the Iran deal back on but turn a blind eye to sort of huge human rights and gender lack of equality, etc. Exactly. I mean, it's disappointing, but I guess it's logical. I, I had, I'm not a Brexiteer, but I, I had hoped that if, if Brexit was to happen, then one of the benefits might be a truly moral and proud British foreign policy. But of course, reality gets in the way. And if you need to side trade deals with people, you, 
you can understand why government ministers feel like they can't go out and criticize and want to leave it to other people. Um, that might be a, a strategic problem with the idea of Brexit itself. The more you isolate yourself, the, the less easy it is to criticize other foreign powers, particularly big, powerful ones. But isn't this a horrible grown-up reality of sort of real politic, which is, you know, we, we want to do trade with these countries, and so we're not going to do anything to jeopardise that. If you were trying to get a contract with a company, you wouldn't start slagging off the CEO over his or her executive pay as you were hoping to get that lucrative freelance deal. I mean, isn't this just the reality of, of global trade-based policy it's it's a reality for sure but what i would what i would uh, raise caution to is, is a sort of selective mm. moral uproar that we have often on the easier villain the easier issue when and that's not consistently applied and the difficulty we have right now i mean i i just to let uh, you all know i mean i lived in asia uh, until between 2001 and 2007 and i saw the Where level did you of live? um pakistan mainly but i sort of worked across the region uh, a fair bit and there you saw the level of chinese investment and you also saw the changing climate so as western obviously you've got this process of decolonization but with trump and now with brexit you know some some countries in the west are so absorbed on domestic on the domestic front they've sort of vacated the international space a space in which china has quite readily sort of walked into um you know and it is a sort of rising superpower and now it has this sort of you could sort of say neo-imperialistic goals across africa asia and it's got it's it's got an economic powerhouse uh, and 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 through this sort of road and belt initiative it's got links with about 80 odd countries well, it's interesting you say that about the um, economic powerhouse because supporters of Trump, I mean, Steve Bannon actually cited this in his um, interview with The Economist, was they were saying, look, we're kind of going to war with China because we think they are this sort of new neo-colonial um, sort of imperialistic economic regime. And that is an argument that has been sort of put forward. Do you think there is some merit in that argument? I don't. I, I don't think there's there, there's never merit in overt trade trade wars and sort of protectionism, which which doesn't look at the, at at the reality of the landscape. The reality is is that you're going to have to trade with this country. This country has alliances, you know, across a region of the world where you need to do more and earn your own sort of leverage your own power there. Um, I don't. I I I'm not. I'm not an advocate of Trump or Bannon's policies for sure. But just in terms of that idea of you know. China's power is becoming so, so, so great, you know, does somebody need to stand up to them? That's, but that is a sort of, it, it's, 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 that's a sort of project fear argument, I would say. So the opposite is, China is reflecting its nation. It, 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 it's making economic, uh, it's, it's taking both an economic and a moral leadership in a massive region. Why aren't everyone else? You know, I mean, I, I, I accept Brexit, but I voted Remain. You know, we, 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 ha we have an economic project in Europe that tried to be some sort of massive trade bloc. You've got NAFTA. It's quite, it's quite interesting that in, um, in, in, in two massive Western blocs, there's a sort of breakdown of, that of those uh, pan-regional you know, mm. uh, pan structures. China's essentially doing that itself, but it's, 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 in, it's in a way where it obviously is the dominant force. But maybe it's so dominant that actually nobody can can criticise it because they're so scared it is so dominant. I mean, there's a general feeling, and I think this is actually the thing that will come to pass, is that power is moving, it is pivoting from the West 
to the east. I think without any question, China is now in, is going to be the future um, global powerhouse, and we know that's coming down the track. Should we be worried about that? Should we try and push back against that, or is that just the way things are, Jamie? You're not going to beat China, and you're certainly not going to do it with a trade war, which harms yourself as well. There is actually a moral case for trade, which is what makes this argument that we started with um, quite complicated. Because what some people would say, I think, know what George Osborne would say when he went to China is, the more trade you do with a country, the more your ideals and your ideas mm. and your information flow into that country, and so in the long run. Rather than clutching your pearls, it's sometimes said about human rights abuses. What you should do is expose Chinese society and culture to it to the way that it's done elsewhere. No, no doubt that's an argument that can be criticised as well. And they too can have Love Island. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what the Chinese people are yearning for. Wants. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's it's a fascinating um, story, Zara, and it just it does throw up a lot of very um, complicated and conflicting. Uh, feelings, because I think we all agree that, you know, trade and open trade is very, very important. But there is also this very um, difficult line of, you know, how vocal do you be about sort of moral atrocities happening in other countries? And what can you really sort of do about it? Well, thank you um, so much for for doing that. Now, we're now moving on to my favourite section of the show, heroes and villains. So our hero of the week, going to come to you for this first, Jamie, is... Ruth Davidson. So Ruth Davidson, a leader of the Conservatives in Scotland, gave a very candid and moving interview at the weekend where she talked about her own uh, struggles with mental health and was very, very explicit about what she had had gone through. Yeah, there's not a single one of us who hasn't themselves suffered mental illness or, or, or isn't close to someone who has suffered mental illness, which is why it's so surprising that we're all so surprised that a leading politician has come out and talked so frankly about it. I've chosen Ruth Davidson as my hero not because I necessarily agree with her politics, but because political leadership is also about moral and personal leadership. And she's shown just by that act of exposing her vulnerabilities, her insecurities, things which she would have feared ridicule for at times in her life to the rest of us, and showed us that she is what we already knew she was, which was a human being, and you look at other politicians on the national scene just now, particularly a lot of bloke politicians, and mm. what what you have is a, a, a kind of alpha pretense a lot of the time. And I think we as a country would do a lot better if we acknowledged, if we acknowledged that our politicians were human, if they acknowledged more often that they were human. Because certainly Ruth Davidson making that announcement hasn't made most of us less likely to follow her. It's made some of us more likely to follow her. It's difficult. I mean, I think she is brilliant. I think she's absolutely great. I think she's spoken fearlessly. And, and it should put on the record that other MPs have spoken out about this. Charles Walker, Kevin Jones, Sarah Wollaston, Andrea Leadsom, um, they all spoke in the chamber in the House of Commons um, back in 2012 about their own uh, personal struggles with mental health. I think the thing which is very, very hard is I totally agree with you. And as somebody who's worked around politics for 20 years now, we do want our politicians to be more human and more fallible. But then when they are, we have a press which absolutely goes for them. So the press is very nice to Ruth Davidson now because, you know, they see her as a potential future conservative leader. And, you know, she's very, very popular. 
But sometimes when other politicians have, um, you know, struggled with their health or struggled with other issues, people have not been so so kind to them. So, Sarah, where do you think the sort of reality of this is? Well, I think I think Ruth Davidson is a case in point of someone entering politics totally authentic. She has never not been herself. She's never not talked about her left of sort of left of the party politics. She's never not talked about some really sensitive social issues. Maybe not her own mental health, but she certainly talked about you know the least um, uh, well off in our society and some of the struggles they face. She's never not talked about her her personal relationships and the fact that she's very comfortable in in being a very liberal you know liberal in her outlook. So she, so when Ruth Davison talks, often it's on a base of authenticity. Most politicians would, you know, would 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 either feign or would love to acquire. Um, that's why they get criticised in a way because they, you know, it comes probably out of it, it becomes it becomes left centre in a way. Um, and and they've already, you know, they in the past they may have voted certain ways. For example, you know, talk about you know gay marriage. Some of the biggest advocates now on. LGBT issues are people who who did vote against gay marriage at the time, and there's that process. That's the case for me, and, and that how you sort of navigate that positioning, of 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 taking a party line or 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 having a at, at one point in time a, a much more narrow mm. perspective, and then adapting, and those who in a way put a mirror onto themselves and and show either the way they always were or, or, the, or the process of change, it looks a lot more authentic and the public can buy into it. Those who, who, who keep a bit to themselves and play the game of, you know, the way politics works of say the right thing, you know, follow the whip, all of that, for, for it becomes to the public a bit more of a, you know, a bolt out of the blue. I think it's so, I just think it's so difficult. I mean, I've advised a number of different politicians over the years, um, male, female, robust, shy, introvert, extrovert. I think... It is so, so tough being in the public eye. I think social media makes it even more tough. I think probably most politicians these days will have some kind of mental health issue just because of the sheer amount of abuse they get day in, day out. And also, I think the closer you get to power and then when you get responsibility, the shine often comes off you quite quickly. I mean, I think she said very honestly, look, I don't think I actually want to do the job of being prime minister And I actually kind of respect her for saying that. Sadly, I think that makes her the perfect person to be prime minister. Mm. But I think there's probably some truth in it. You being prime minister and being leader of the opposition are two of probably the most brilliant, but the most terrible, brilliant professionally, terrible on a personal level to do those. Yeah. And and, and, and every MP will tell you that entering the house has a massive impact on the relationships on their, yeah. on their social life on on, on family just, life yeah. health you know, yeah it's 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 tough um but you know matthew de Connor in 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 his latest evening standard column echoed your sentiments Aisha, about the fact that the reason why she said she can't stand as the next conservative leader because of her issues around family um you know self-care are exactly the that's exactly the kind of person we would love to be you know, political leader. Yeah. And the question then comes, you know, what sort of leaders do we get? I know. I mean, that's the difficult thing. I mean, perhaps if we had leaders that kind of looked after themselves a bit more, they would look after the country a bit better as well. But I think that's sadly where we're a long way off that. Right. We're now going to go to villain of um, the week. Uh, I mean, I've I've labelled them as villain. I think most people around the state would sort of agree. But these are the Conservative MPs um, and their decision to vote against um, the decision to to trigger uh, disciplinary procedures against Hungary, uh, Zara, what, what's your view on this? I know you've 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 spoken very very passionately 
about this because you are you were a former conservative candidate you know you you are still quite active mm-hmm. within the conservative party this i know was a very personally difficult well, thing for you well i mean you. i know a lot of the conservative MEPs and i understand their technical legal point of view I, I've, 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 I've worked in Brussels as well, so I understand the mechanics of the line they took was they did not want Brussels interference in domestic policy. I, I, I kind of I understand that. Um, the issue I have is twofold. One, um, where why did it take so long? Um, you know, for eight hours or so for for an, a statement to come out as to the fact that they did not this did, this vote did not mean that they did not support Orban and they did not support his policies. There was that little bit of a delay, um, and I, and I think more thought could have gone into that. And and secondly, there is an issue about you know the sort of society we want, and 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 the fact of the matter is is that why was Europe going in that direction vis-a-vis Orban? It's because quite specific. Issues. It's it's because of his, some of his domestic policies. Fine, but it's around. You know, he called Muslims invaders. He has been anti-Semitic. There are massive restrictions on civil society in, in Hungary right now. That there, you know, and it's not good, is it? It's it's yeah. I mean, and obviously the Article Seven proceedings. You know, it, there's a long process to really censure a country. This was a sort of the first step, but it it's the the, the main. The main problem for the party, and I wouldn't call them villains, I would say I'm just disappointed uh, personally, but the, the problem they have is sort of the optics mm. more than anything else. Well, I mean, the optics terrible. Look, Jamie, we've just had this horrific um, incident with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which the Labour Party has quite rightly torn itself apart over, and there's been a lot of... Um, I think the thing that... I was just quite shocked about this because, quite rightly, conservative leading Conservative MPs were calling out the Labour Party, quite rightly, mm-hmm. and yet this horrendous thing happened. The hypocrisy is so deeply unpleasant. And I have to say, I, I don't even understand what is said to be the, the sort of logical, technical explanation for the vote. If what you're trying to oppose is the kind of democratic deficit of Brussels interfering, as you put it, uh, as, as, um, as it's been put, then is that a greater evil than what's, what the resolution was trying to do, which was to send a message about the actual removal of democratic rights mm. in Hungary? It's that classic thing of destroying the EU just to own the libs or stopping uh, infe- effective criticism of an actual authoritarian on the basis that Brussels is sometimes perceived to be a little bit authoritarian. Yeah. It seems to me the internal logic of it just doesn't work. And... Uh, you know, I've, I, I left the Labour Party over the issue of anti-Semitism, having been an activist and uh, an activist and, and uh, indeed an aide to politicians for more than 10 years. And I do not celebrate when I see the Conservative Party behaving this way. I, I don't take a great deal of comfort when Tory politicians one day are on their high horse about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and the next day are giving a blind eye to an actual authoritarian on our doorstep. And I think that's another reason why people are so cynical about the motives of politicians, because Mm, it's sort mm. of like, do you have to weaponize everything and then there's no level of consistency? I mean, Zara, has this incident made you consider your position within the party? I, I've got quite definite principles and I've campaigned on, on, on human rights and uh, anti-racism all my life. So I have not changed my, my, my own 
uh, values. But I will call out decisions that I think mm. are wrong. I think I think they were misguided in that vote. They were certainly misguided not to give sort of any explanation. And the bigger picture is, as Jamie rightly points out, is that politics is not done in a silo. A decision can't be made in Brussels. And then domestically, people do not see it. So now, for example, there is a f- when you ca- when you call out anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn will come back with, well, why did you prop up Victor Orban? When, you know, when you call out racism mm. and, and challenging racial injustices, you know, they will call, you know, so so you've got to be consistent in your approach. Um, and, and, the, and the second thing, the minor point is the fact that Orban, you know, this is around Brexit, partly, in that Orban may, you know, this is this is to secure perhaps a better deal. And and then you've got that last point of, you know, national interest versus mm. moral imperatives, etc. And I understand all of that. But for me, it's the optics that are damaging. But also, for me, it's just, it's it's the morality of it, basically, whether it's anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, or whether it's sort of siding with kind of anti-Semites um, in, in other countries, you just, everyone's right about the optics and the politics, but it's also about kind of doing the right thing and yeah. I think everybody's been yeah. incredibly disappointed by this well look we end on a, a sort of a slightly sombre note but thank you so much uh, Jamie and Zara for, for coming in today absolutely fascinating dis- discussion um, Jamie's book Future Politics um, is out today it's absolutely a fascinating read uh, challenging some really really big principles about where we go with our um, politics thank you very much for listening this has been the Unheard Weekly Podcast I'm Aisha Hazarika and I will see you next week Thank you.